There is one investor that will always lend you money, but it comes at a very high price. Technical debt is a catchy phrase thrown around the tech scene. If you're not a developer, today you'll learn what it is, how to borrow against it as a software business founder, how big the interest is, and how to pay it back. Today we speak with Alex Omeyer, the founder of StepSize. Welcome back to the Product Stories Podcast, hosted by Victor Peralnik. This podcast helps founders like yourself to find leaner ways to build successful SaaS products. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Victor. Yeah. What, what is StepSize? What, what do you do? Yeah. So StepSize is a tech company building a developer tool specifically dedicated to building the connective tissue between the code editor and all the tools that engineers have to use all day, every day. And, uh, you know, we just happened to have started with issue tracking, which uh, enables a whole bunch of new workflows and use cases, one of which is to use it to track and prioritize things you want to improve in your code base and deal with technical debt, which is why I'm here today. Oh, totally. Yeah. So let's let's put a definition out there. What, what is technical debt? I like to say that technical debt is code that you've decided as a liability, essentially. And I'll try to expand on that, on that a little bit. It's um, all that extra work that you feel is unnecessary, yet you have to do to get your software out of the door. It takes many shapes and forms. It could be bad code. It could be good code that is no longer appropriate. It could be yeah, just a change in priorities that doesn't match your expectations as to what your business should be doing, and therefore your code base is no longer appropriate, and you need to do something about it, right? So it's, it isn't necessarily the result of um, engineers doing a bad job. Uh, you can think of it as entropy in your code base. If you ever tried to spin up some old Python project only to see every dependency break and have to spend a few hours uh, fixing the thing to get it going again, no one's touched it, it's no one's fault, but there's still technical debt in there. Right. Yeah, that definitely never happened to me, right? To, to know. Uh, and so why does good code matter? Because you said that a part of that could be bad code, right? And I want to expand on that a little. And I understand that sometimes this, this depends on the stage you're at, right? You said it could be good code today, but could be bad code tomorrow if my business priorities change or my scale even or, or whatnot. But probably there's also objectively bad code. Is, is there something like that? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, sometimes people use the, the term technical debt as a short shortcut for bad code. And that's very different, right? Because if you're not following best practices, if you're not doing a good job building clean, readable, extensible code, then you're more likely to have problems dealing with it and maintaining it later down the line. That being said, any line of code that you write comes at a maintenance cost, right? And the maintenance cost is higher for bad code than it is for good code. Martin Fowler has a great technical debt quadrant, as he calls it. I won't describe it. Go to his blog and check it out. But effectively, he says that if you're going to take on some technical debt, it needs to be prudent and deliberate, right? Prudent because you didn't take on too much and it's not you know, a ridiculous thing that you'll never be able to deal with, deliberate because you made the decision. You didn't just happen to pile it on without knowing. And that's what tends to happen when you write bad code. You asked about the, the importance of uh, you know, sort of a clean, healthy code base. 
if you accumulate too much technical debt or let your code base get unhealthy, you're going to end up with loads of productivity issues in your engineering team, which means you're not going to ship features as fast for your customers. You're going to end up with loads of quality issues in your software, which means there'll be plenty of bugs or security issues and all that kind of stuff for your customers again. And also, your engineering team's morale is going to go down the drain because no one likes to spend ages wrestling with technical debt that they know they should have dealt with if only the business had let them done it. Uh, do it. Sorry. So these are the three areas uh, where where I see businesses get impacted by technical debt. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a classic uh, engineering versus versus product to push versus refactor, right? And I guess that's exactly this this model of technical debt where you don't have to do it now, right? You don't you don't have to pay it back now. You can borrow against it in theory, right? Uh, saves you money, but it comes at a at a cost. And and what exactly is that cost? The cost of technical debt is what I was saying at the end of that um, last answer is um, productivity, quality, and morale. And I'll give you a, a few data points on um, each of them, because uh, we often survey engineers in our community to ask them questions like, hey, how much faster do you think you would go if you had technical debt under control? And two thirds of the respondents in these th this first survey, as we're talking a couple hundred engineers, said that they thought they would go twice as fast if they had tech debt under control. And 15% said three times faster. And anecdotally, I've asked directors of engineering at very serious software companies who were into the 5x, 6x, 8x, right? So that's the impact that it can have on your productivity. Uh, Stripe has a really good report called the Developer Coefficient. Google it, have a look. It's written by Stripe. They um, also did a survey of a lot of engineers where they found that, and I may be misquoting here, but engineers effectively spend a third of their time dealing with technical debt and its consequences. And then on the next point, I think you know that same survey asked engineers if they thought that technical debt could be the root cause of bugs. And to them, the answer is duh, right? So pretty much everyone knows that if you have too much technical debt, you're going to end up with bugs and um, extra, maybe more serious problems. And then when it comes to engineering team morale, again, in a separate survey, we asked a few hundred engineers if they had ever considered or had quit a job because of technical debt in the code base. And 51% of them admitted to have had this thought to outright quit a job because of tech debt, right? So all these problems that we have around developer shortages and churn in the team, you know, the average tenure of an engineer is like 12 to 18 months in a company, which is not a very long time when you think about it. These uh, happen in a big part because of technical debt as well. Not just, of course, but uh, in a big part. That's actually really bad, so to speak, when you have technical debt. So not only do things go twice or three times as slow, according to your, your studies, but also people might just quit. And I guess it's not even that things move substantially slower, but in a calculatable, predictable way. But it's like totally unpredictable as well, right? Hiring a perfect team isn't a piece of cake, is it? To find a good candidate, you need to post a job on multiple job boards, review like 100 CVs, conduct at least a dozen initial interviews to make sure there's at least a single specialist you would like to hire. But with Superb Hire by Trust Shore, you can forget about all of the hiring headache. 
find, meet, and hire skilled and dedicated assistants ready to take over marketing, sales, administrative, customer support, data entry, or other tasks, contribute to your business growth, and help you reach your goals. Superb Hire takes care of the entire recruitment process. You just have to show up for the final interview. Visit SuperbHire.com and book a free, no-commitment call to learn more. It's SuperbHire.com. Yeah, that's a great point, because if you think of uh, tech debt as entropy in your code base and all this extra complexity that you have to deal with, you know, picture any exponential curve and try to predict where you're going to be on that curve. You, you're off by this much, you're you know all the way at the top, all the way at the bottom. And that's the issue that you're dealing with when you're trying to get any sense of timelines or predictability in the way you're working on it on a code base that has too much technical debt. Because I'd like to clarify as well that technical debt's not uh, this bad and evil thing, right? I think we'll talk about how you can take some on for extra leverage so long as it's prudent and deliberate. But if you have too much of it and it's not prudent and deliberate, you can end up in that situation. Mm, I, I like that point because, uh, as you mentioned, like most people probably just run into having technical debt and then they suddenly realize that everything's harder, deadlines are being missed, uh, customers complain. But how can I make that deliberate decision and, and, and really say, hey, I want to save some money. I understand the consequences. And, and when should I then really start paying it back? When should I make that decision? Because I think it's super painful at any point in time. Yeah, that's a great question. There are actually a lot of things to consider. One of them could be the stage of the product on which you're working, right? So if you're working on something that's very early stage and unproven, you're probably better off taking on some technical debt to put it in front of the the target audience to get some feedback and iterate on it. If you're past that line where you found some semblance of product market fit, the things that you know are here to stay ideally should not contain too much technical debt, right? And that's where you start paying some back. So, you know, if you think of it in terms of startups, that may often happen after the Series A, maybe Series B, where they they have a product that is gaining traction, they have customers, they can't just bin the thing, which is the easiest way to deal with technical debt. You throw it away, all the tech debt's gone, right? But you have to support and maintain this thing because you have customers who rely on it, and you need to do that at the same time as shipping features, right? And so that's the balancing act that you have to figure out is on the one hand, the pressure to ship features, which is very directly tied and obviously tied to growing revenue, growing engagement, all these metrics that matter to um, these companies. And on the other, you've got maintenance work, which sounds more boring, and it's a lot harder to draw a straight line from maintenance to revenue. But at the end of the day, it indirectly impacts pretty much every aspect of your company when you think about it. So there's ways to define your technical debt budget for your sprint, your month, or whatever period is sort of predictable uh, for you. There are effectively the way you do it is you decide on your current business priorities, and it could be shipping features. It could be you know the the security of your platform, the speed at which your website loads, your um, engineering team's productivity and morale. Right, you have these priorities, and you find ways to deal with the technical debt that gets in the way of these priorities. So one obvious one is when you say next sprint we're going to be shipping features A, B, and C. And you're able to go, okay, this will have us work in code X, Y, Z. What are the problems in this code that will impact our ability to ship these features or the quality of these features or 
whatever business priority you care about, then you go, okay, let's scope them out, these improvements, like you would any feature work, and have it go through your usual development process, if you will, to the set, exactly like you would for feature work. And so let's say for sake of argument that you can ship 100 story points in a sprint, and you end up with 20 story points of improvements that you'd like to make to your code base to clear the way for these business priorities, your tech that budget for the sprint is 20% of the sprint, right? And you want to do that on a regular cadence because I have, I think I've ever seen a company really succeed when they stop everything and just go, let's deal with technical debt and then get back to these business priorities later. Namely, because it usually, you, know, you can't boil the ocean, you can't deal with all of your technical debt at once. And while you're dealing with your tech debt, you know, you're also building software based on your understanding of the problem you're solving right now. Give it a few days, weeks, and months, uh, especially if you're an early stage company, that understanding will change, right? But your code base, if you leave it un unattended, will not. And so that's why it needs to be a continuous thing, right? While your business evolves. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Because as you say, there's never a good time to stop and rebuild or take care of things, but it just gets worse if you push it off. So in a way, just dealing with it in a continuous way is, is probably smart. I've, I've seen various ways, probably two of them are, you know, whatever code part of the code we're, we're touching to change features, we will refactor or or even separate teams that were a new one takes care of somewhat of a refactor or rewrite. I don't know, depending on probably the size of the company. Not sure what's what's the best way. I guess that's super individual. Now, maybe more speaking about the bad code in the sense of objectively bad code or even a non-fitting architecture for the current stage or, or scale of my business. How does a non-technical founder understand if their app might have a bad code base? How do I realize that? Maybe it's time to use an analogy. And one I, I like to work with is that of a professional kitchen, right? If you're just shipping dishes all night without any regard for you know, cleaning the surfaces, cleaning the, the, the um, uh, pots and pans as you go, making sure that everything is nice and sanitary, you're, you're going to get shut down because you're going to make someone ill. Also, at some point, you just won't have the space or equipment to keep shipping dishes, right? The, the same goes when you're shipping features all day, every day without any regard for, for that maintenance work. And the best way to know the situation is to ask the people in the kitchen, right? So to talk to your engineers about it. And one thing to remember, and maybe it's a bit of a stereotype, but uh, it's interesting nonetheless, is engineers love to build things properly. And if you listen to some engineers, they'll tell you that everything needs to be fixed in the code base. And so that's where your, your role comes in. You need to understand what is actually impeding your key business priorities and then say, look, I know this other stuff is on fire. Leave it for now. Maybe we'll come to it someday, but deal with the things that are in the way of priorities A, B, and C, because this is the stuff that we've decided matters. And, and that's very important because um, if you just listen to engineering, they'll probably pull you too much in the maintenance direction. If you just listen to products, they'll probably you too much in the let's ship features direction. I'm aware these are stereotypes and oversimplifications, by the way, but that's kind of the, the, the problem you're facing. 
And so if you have forums for your engineers to talk about this stuff, um, if you have tools like StepSize for your engineers to report these issues that they come across in the code base before they start causing problems, then you'll have ways to find the stuff that's in the way of your key priorities and to say, slow down, let's not deal with this stuff over there, let's deal with this over here because it's important. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. You may have part of your code base that's absolutely terrible because you know some non-technical founder who learned how to code built it early in the company's lifetime, like I may have done, but it's not causing any bugs. It's still humming away in a part of the code base that no one's going to be working on for the next six months. So why bother? You know, you're not going to go deal with that when you could be refactoring, I don't know, your payment system that is uh, not billing your customers properly, for example, which is maybe one of your key priorities at the moment. That makes a lot of sense. Probably the, the hardest part, especially for a non-technical founder, is, is understanding which actually impact what and then being able to make the right decisions. But then you should probably work with and listen to your lead developer, CTO, whoever you might be working with, or worst case, get an external consultant on that. I would add that you know your job as a non-technical person who influences the staff is to be clear about the priorities of the business because your engineers will be able to find the things that are in the way of these priorities right they don't they typically don't need to be overseen they if if you clarify what it is that matters they'll be able to prioritize the right things yeah i, I guess clear communication clear your goal setting and 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 making sure everybody understands the business goals the mission long term but also short term, right? Hey, these are the things we want to impact over the next three months. Like what's standing in your way to do that? I, I guess that's the right approach. Exactly, exactly. So generally speaking, and obviously the varies from stage to stage, but speaking about best practices, what should developers be doing that produces good code and a normal, maintainable code base? There are some classics that everyone would have heard about, you know, things that you can do to level up as a team, whether it be code reviews. Some people like to do pair programming. There's tooling, you know, classics like linters or code quality tools that you can use to flag some of these issues. There are things around your development process. And if you have uh, retros on a regular cadence that are properly run to surface any issues that you might have in the development process, and then you actually allocate time and resources to dealing with these, over time, you're going to keep leveling up. And at the end of the day, I like to think that the the way to summarize the problem that they're facing in the engineering team is that they, and that's a concept called sustainable development that's part of the 12 key principles of Agile, is that if you manage to level up faster than the complexity of your code base increases, you should theoretically be able to ship at a very sustainable and predictable pace despite your code base getting more and more complex, right? So that's the idea. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That That's a great one. Now, maybe let's talk a bit about step size. How does step size in particular help engineering teams tackle technical debt? You mentioned it, it, it helps point out where the issues are, but maybe give it a bit more details. So we've acknowledged that the engineer's hub should be their code editor. But 
it's not, right? And that causes all sorts of problems if we focus on technical debt um, because people typically try to track things they want to improve about their code base in a backlog in a tool like Jira. Let's just pick on Jira, but it's the case with any generalist PM tool. These issues are totally divorced from the code they relate to, which means you can't do this exercise that we spoke about earlier of saying we're working on features ABC in code XYZ. What are the issues in there, right? So the issues are totally divorced from the code they relate to. And with step size, engineers can just select right there in their editor any snippets or collection of code and create an issue, a normal issue that lives in their issue tracker as well, but is also linked to the code it relates to. And so all of a sudden, the this sort of ongoing maintenance and, and improvement of the code base can become part of the conversation that you have with product in sprint planning, in any of the usual you know, grooming sessions or any of the usual ceremonies that you have around building software. And you know, I, I told you that's one of the use cases to flag things you want to improve in the code base. But when you think about it, if step size is a way to leave annotations in your code, you're also talking about replacing all kinds of code comments with something strictly superior that has all these multiplayer features around commenting and tagging people and assigning them and resolving subtasks and so on. And you can also uh, use these annotations as a way to document some quirks in your code, right? Like, hey, this piece of tech that we've decided to keep it around for now, but here's why we're doing it and, and what we'll do about it later. So the next person who comes around and sees that code can have this information and not go down the same rabbit hole, for example. Uh, another use case might be to flag top coding standards that you would like the team to follow or even pull code that you would like the team to look at and do a sort of a mini review in there, right? And so what we found out is that by bringing this integration to the editor with the issue tracker, we've enabled all these new workflows that were previously completely impossible and um, extremely valuable for these engineering teams in terms of helping them collaborate on their code base and keeping it healthy. Mm, that's super helpful, yeah. Go check it out, stepsize.com. And how, how did you get that idea? How did you start the business? Oh, wow. So um, <laughs> I'll give you the... How much time do you have? <laughs> uh, well, uh, as, as much as you need. <laughs> uh, I'll give you the, the summary. Um, so I have three co-founders who are originally mathematicians and data scientists. And the first insight behind Stepsize was hey, there's a lot of data created as a byproduct of software development. I wonder what kind of cool stuff you could do if you had access to that data. Some of the cool stuff would be applying AI and machine learning to some of these development workflows to try to automate them. But before that, there's a lot of value you can deliver just by you know, bringing up the right information in the right place at the right time, etc. And we um, thought that in order to deliver on that future promise, we would need to build a product that is so valuable that engineers use it all day, every day. And that leverages this kind of data set of, you know, this context around code to help them do their jobs better. And we went through many iterations of different ideas for products that would have this potential. And then... It was June of uh, last year, we shipped the first version of this product that I described, which uh, quickly took off, right? And so clearly, the, um, the this idea that um, 
the editor should be the real hub for the engineer, but realizing all the ways in which it's not and all of the opportunities that they're missing. You know, I was talking about these new workflows that we enable. All of that was a really big deal for our users and customers. And so we doubled down on it and here we are. Cool. Amazing story. Well, thank you so much for for being on the show. Where can people find more about you? Uh-huh. So you can also so please go to stepsize.com. You know, you can try the product for free as well. You can find us on Twitter at stepsize HQ, where we share a lot of content relating to code quality, code-based health, technical debt, some good memes as well. And if you want to get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter as well, at Alex O'Meyer. That's O-M-E-Y-E-R. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been super helpful. My pleasure. Thanks, Victor. This show is brought to you by TrustShoring, your friendly concierge to find reliable and tested software developers from Eastern Europe. We recruit full-time developers, match you to an experienced software house that's ideal for your requirements, or recommend a reliable freelancer for smaller projects. But most importantly, you benefit from our experience of developing software remotely for almost 10 years. We give you one-on-one guidance all the way so you're never lost. Stop the tedious hiring or vetting process and get matched to reliable talent. Sign up for a free consulting call with one of our experts today. Go to TrustShoring.com.